Thank you. You may be seated. So good to see all of you this morning. Uh, my name is David Winger. I serve as the associate pastor here at Hallmark Baptist Church. And many of you are thinking, well, what does an associate do? Well, I associate. As long as I'm associating and assisting our senior pastor, no, I, I, do, I do a little bit more than that, but uh, I, I am blessed to be over connect groups here at our church, and if you're not involved in a connect group at 930, I encourage you to do that. We are walking through the Bible on a three-year journey, and we just so happen to be in the book of Exodus. Every age is on the same page, and connect groups is where you find friends. We're not a massive church, but we're a big enough church to where you don't know everybody, and so we have some um, age-graded connect groups uh, from the, the cradle to the grave, and I encourage you to get in one of those. Uh, so you can walk through the Bible with us and also find some friends here at Hallmark. I'm also blessed to be over the Connection team. Those are the people that wear the orange lanyards and make you feel right at home here, hopefully. And I think we're the friendliest church in Fort Worth, uh, but I'm biased. Uh, I also get uh, the privilege of, of figuring out ways we can connect with our community through things like Business of the Month and all of that, and so I am blessed to serve here, and every now and then, Pastor John even lets me preach, and today is one of those days, and so if you're a guest for the first time, I encourage you, come back next Sunday, uh, because you'll get to hear from our senior pastor, as we saw him, he is in Kenya, Africa, and uh, along with the, the wonderful sister in Christ, who's 90, that we just witnessed the baptism of, they baptized 28 new believers uh, in what was their Sunday morning, I think it happened about midnight, our time. Uh, but opening your Bibles to the book of Exodus. This morning we start a new 10-week series in this incredible book of the Bible. It's the second book of the Bible. And as you turn there, uh, Ben already mentioned we have a very exciting event coming up. Sunday, January 27th. Uh, it's called OT Live. It's, it's going through the Old Testament in a fun and creative way. And I can't I promote this enough. I really want you to bring your entire family to this. All the kids that are in your family that are able to read, you need to bring them because they're going to have a great time learning together with you how to really memorize how the Old Testament fits together. And I know some of you think, well, I, there's no way I can memorize that. Yes, you can. If I can do it, anybody can do it. In fact, uh, after the staff was able to go to this training, uh, we were all pretty pumped about it, and Miss Allison, our children's ministry director, began teaching our kids as we walked through the Old Testament some of the hand motions that we learned. And so I had her video them uh, walking up through the Bible, up to Genesis, or up to Exodus, so you can see what this is all about. Let's, let's look at the screen. This is your kids. Not bad. Yeah, they're all learning how to, yeah, go ahead and give them a hand, even though they're not here. I'll, I'll let them know that you, you applauded them uh, next week. And so it's pretty simple. I, I'm going to show you what they did, just so you can kind of get a personal eyewitness here. They just said creation. That's the book of Genesis. That's God creating the world. And then in Genesis 3, there was the fall. Mankind fell in sin. Then there was the flood. God destroyed the earth but spared no one and his family. And then he created nations at the Tower of Babel. He confused the language, started nations. And then he made Abram a covenant promise that he would make his descendants like the stars of the heavens. So this is Abraham. And then a miracle son was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, and it was Isaac, baby Isaac right here. 
You guys, do this with me. Just, just do this right here. Okay, not bad. You guys are great. You need to come two weeks from Sunday. This is Isaac. And then from Isaac, he had twin boys. And one of the, one of the boys' names was Jacob, and he wrestled with God. Everybody do the arm wrestle. He wrestled with God. And at that point, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. But his favorite son, what was his favorite son's name? Joseph, and he made him a coat of many colors. Everybody do this. He was styling, right? A coat of many colors. And then Joseph was sold into slavery by his bitter brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. But God exalted Joseph to the second most powerful position in the land of Egypt, and he saved the nation And then he was reunited with Jacob and the rest of his brothers and his family, and they moved to Egypt. And then Joseph died, and the children of Israel fell into slavery. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in just a few moments. But God raised up a delivery, a deliverer, and his name was Moses. Moses. He had the staff. Everybody go, Moses. And then, of course, God spared the people through the Passover. That's it. We just went from Genesis up through Exodus. Piece of cake. We're going to learn the entire Old Testament, January 27th. So register. Don't wait. Register. We've got to know how many people are coming so we can feed you dinner and also get you enough workbooks. Well, with that said, let's go to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus begins with the word now. And it's because Exodus is just a continuation of the story that began in Genesis. Genesis tells us the story of creation and how humanity got into sin. Exodus tells us the story of redemption and how mankind can get out of sin. The, the word Exodus is made up of, of a conjunction of two words, two Greek words. Uh, one word is hapos, it means the way, and the other word is ex, and it means out. It's the way out. Everybody say, the way out. So when you see the word Exodus, think the way out. The way out of what? Well, it's the way out of Egypt, which represents the world. It's the way out of of Pharaoh's bondage, which Pharaoh represents Satan. It's the way out of, of slavery, which represents sin. It's the way out. Exodus is all about the way out. It's the book of redemption. In fact, Jesus uses one of those two words to describe himself in John 14, 6. He said, I am the hapas. I am the way, the truth and the life. Jesus is the way out of the world, the way out of Satan's oppression, the way out of slavery to sin, but I'm going to talk more about that later. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at the book of Exodus. The first 18 chapters of the book center on God saving his people. The final 22 chapters center on God sanctifying his people. And the main figure in the book of Exodus is who? Somebody say Moses, Moses, right? Did you know that Moses is mentioned more by name than any other person throughout Scripture? Moses is mentioned by name 720 times. He is a very prominent character in the book of, in the books of the Bible and especially in Exodus. But if you simply study Exodus to learn more about Moses, you've missed the point entirely. Because the book of Exodus, though written by Moses, and by the way, the first five books of the Bible uh, were inspired by the Holy Spirit through Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And most of Exodus is simply an eyewitness account of things that Moses had seen. But the book of Exodus is not about Moses. It's about the God that Moses served. And when you look at the book of Exodus, you will discover that God 
is a God of power and glory and holiness and grace and mercy and love. He is Almighty God. But if you look closer, you will see that Exodus points us to the personification of one who would reflect all of those attributes because he is God himself, Jesus Christ. And so hopefully as you go through the book of Exodus, you will see Jesus on every page. If you don't, read it again because he's there. Well, Exodus 1 and 2, uh, this is a lot of text to cover in one sermon, but hopefully, hopefully you'll leave today with one overarching theme that is very clear in these two chapters, and that is this, God cares. God cares. Doesn't that bring relief to your soul? God cares. And we will see, first of all, in chapter 1, that God cares for the multitude of Israel. Now, I want to read all of chapter 1 while we're together today, and that's because God's word is what does not return void. You may forget what Dave Winger says today, but hopefully uh, you will not forget what the Spirit of God says uh, through the Bible that we hold in our hands. So Exodus chapter 1, verse 1, says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born... You shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Exodus chapter 1. So we see a few things in this chapter, and I included them uh, in your bulletin. I just gave you a couple blanks because I wanted you to really focus uh, on, on what God's doing in this overarching theme of God cares. But really, chapter 1 breaks down into a pretty uh, simple outline. The first thing we see there in verses 1 through 7 is a fruitful people. Uh, the Israelites came to Egypt when they were just 70 uh, in number, but then they multiplied and grew. In fact, if you go through 
chapter 1 and underline that word multiply, multiply, multiply. God wants us to know this nation became large. Went from 70 to approximately 2.5 million people over the course of about 400 years' time. So much so that Pharaoh was intimidated by their size, by their might. It looks like the Jewish people took seriously when God said to Adam and to Noah both, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. They said, no problem. And they started to grow. In in fact, their nation became quite large. Now, as you were reading through that text, and you got to that, uh, that number in verse 5, 70 people. How many of you have a footnote there that takes you down to some study notes about that number and mentions a conflict? Okay, Gary, I just want to clear that out for you this morning. Gary's the only one that raised his hand there. Uh, but there is a discrepancy there from the Old Testament text. And when Stephen preaches in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7, when, when Stephen is preaching, he's recounting this entire story of the history of the children of Israel and how Jacob went to Egypt. But he says that there were 75 that moved to Egypt. But here in the Old Testament text, it says 70. In fact, uh, all three places in the Old Testament, it says 70. So Stephen must be wrong. Well, Stephen can't be wrong because Stephen was preaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what's the deal? Is the Bible mistaken? Is there an error in the Scriptures? Some would say yes. I say No, it all depends on how you count. Were there 70? Were there 75? The answer is yes. It's like determining the boiling point of water. If somebody says, what's the boiling point of water? One guy says 100 degrees Celsius. That's correct. Another guy says 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's correct. It's all in the way you count it. Stephen was counting in a different way. Maybe he was taking into account children that would be born later that weren't alive in the time of Moses that became prominent in the Israel's uh, genealogy. We're not sure how he arrived at that number. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time doing that. But just know that that's not a conflict. It's just a different way to count. We simply need to recognize this morning that the Jews were a fruitful people. And over the course of about 400 years, they went from 70 to over 2 million people. The second thing we see is in verses 8 through 10. It says that generations after Joseph died... He was forgotten. Now, I have some bad news for you this morning. No matter who you are, no matter what great things you accomplish in this lifetime, eventually, you will be forgotten. Sorry, I know that's depressing. Uh, But, you know, maybe if you make it into the history books, you'll last a couple centuries more than I will. But ultimately, you will be forgotten. That's just the way it goes. But let me encourage you by saying this. God will never forget you. God cares for you. And God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your afterlife. If you just trust him as Savior, God will never forget you. So while they forgot Joseph as a forgotten prince, even though he saved Israel, uh, he saved Israel, he saved Egypt from a seven-year famine that would have completely wiped out the nation, he was still forgotten. But God will never forget you. By the way, that's why everything you should do in life should be for his glory, his honor. You should work as unto him because he will never forget you. Well, then we see a fearful punishment in verses 11 through 14. There was a new Pharaoh. He forgot Joseph, how God had used Joseph to save his people, and so he becomes intimidated by the multitude of the Jews, the might of the Jews, so he enslaves them. 
and puts them to work. They build two supply cities that are historical locations, Pithom and Ramses. And even then, in spite of the forced punishment, in spite of the slavery, the people grew in number and strength. They prospered in spite of the pain. Why? Because God cared for them. Did you know that because God cares for us, he will never waste a hurt in our life? He can even use pain on purpose to develop us and to make us more like himself. And so he was developing the children of Israel into a mighty multitude that could endure a wilderness journey and take the promised land. The next couple verses, 15 through 16, we see a fearful proclamation. Pharaoh saw that, the, that slavery did not work, and so he, he made a fearful proclamation. He said every male child was to be destroyed. He orders the Hebrew midwives to kill every male child, child to abort them, but God cares for and protects them. They survive the prospect of certain death because of the faith of two ladies, and I call them the faithful pair. In verses 17 through 21, these two unlikely heroes... Uh, Shipra and Pua feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They loved life more than they feared death. And they spare these boys. And God blesses them for that. I think that's amazing. That they feared God more than they feared the certain prospect of death. You know, there are people that love life so much. And we, we partner with an incredible organization here in Fort Worth. The Fort Worth Pregnancy Center. Uh, we made them our business of the month, if you will, for December just because of their great work. These are people that have dedicated their lives to saving one child at a time. And this month is, is National Right to Life Month. In fact, next Sunday, we will have a representative from the Fort Worth Pregnancy Center here uh, to tell you a little bit more about how you can volunteer down there and save one life. You know, only God knows the potential of one human life. You've heard it said that anybody can count the, the number of seeds in an apple. Uh, but only God knows the number of apples in one seed. Only God knows the potential of a human life. And God knew the potential of Moses' life. And we're going we're to get to that in chapter 2. But he used these two women and their faithful obedience to spare the lives of the Hebrew males. Well, in chapter 1, we see that in spite of Pharaoh's destructive plans, God cares for the multitude of his people. Now let's go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we'll see that God cares not only for the multitude of his people, but he cares for Moses. Now, again, I want to read the entirety of chapter 2, so buckle up. I know this is more Bible than a lot of you have read all week, but it's good for you. And uh, this is the word of God. Chapter 2. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as a wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Finally, a mom gets paid to raise her child. Can I get an amen, ladies? Where's my paycheck? The princess will give you a paycheck. Verse 10, And the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. By the way, between verses 10 and 11, we fast forward 40 years. How do we know? It doesn't say 40 years. Well, in Acts chapter 7 in Stephen's message, he gives us the timeline. Moses was 40 years old when all this happened. And it will mention that in a little bit too here in our text. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, 40 years old, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reol, their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you've left this man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. And if you have an English Standard Version, it says God basically hears, God sees, God knows. And I would add, God cares. We see all through the story of Moses' birth, God caring for the man that he would raise up to deliver his people. We see him caring for Moses through a friendly princess in verses 5 through 9. She's going down to bathe and she sees an ark in the reeds, and she goes over, her curiosity is peaked, and she says, go get that thing, what's inside? And she opens it up, and there's a precious baby, and, and Moses cries, and her heart is moved with compassion. She sees a child, she hears him cry, and she is stirred to action. God cares for Moses by allowing him to become a fostered prince. Uh, the, the princess is so moved by this, the plight of this little child that she, she says, I'm going to take him in, I'm going to make him my son. And so in a wonderful turn of events, uh, Moses is able to be nursed by his own mother. She gets a paycheck for that. And then Moses is a fostered prince, and he comes into Pharaoh's house and is raised as an Egyptian. It's incredible. Moses was raised for 40 years with the finest of Pharaoh's house. He was educated by the smartest. He was trained by the toughest. He learned how to rule a nation in the house of Pharaoh. Now, we don't know a whole lot 
about Moses' life in that 40 years. I would imagine that Moses had some pretty incredible experiences living in the home of the most powerful man in the world. He could probably write a book about that, yet we don't know anything about it because instead of writing about all of the luxuries of Pharaoh's house, he chooses to, to write about how God used him to lead a, a grumbly people through the wilderness. We get a little bit of a clue as to maybe why he didn't record this in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, where it says that it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought that it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. You see, Moses weighed his, his pleasures in the world with his following and obedience to God in the wilderness, and he said, the pleasures of the world are wanting. I would rather go with God than be enriched in the world. Sounds like the old song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather be his and have riches untold. Amen. And so Moses was a fostered prince but then as he grew up, he began to see the plight of his people, and it bothered him. And in verses 11 through 15, we see Moses rushing ahead of God's plan. He grows impatient with God's plan and delivering the people. And he goes out and he sees one of his brothers being mistreated because the Hebrews were enslaved. He looks around to see if anyone's watching, and he kills one of the Egyptians. And he perpetrates a crime. And then he flees for his life, and he goes to the backside of the Midian desert you know what I've noticed? Anytime I try to rush God's plan, anytime I try to manufacture what I think God might be doing in my life, it, it has a tendency to hurt people. And it has a tendency to breed distrust in other people. And it has a tendency to put me on a very disappointing path in life. Moses experienced that. He tried to rush what God was doing. And it didn't work out for him. But God used even his disobedience to take him to a place where he could learn things he would have never learned in the palace. You see, Moses was not going to lead in a palace. He was not going to leave, lead in the lap of luxury. He was going to spend the majority of his life, the next 80 years of his life, leading a grumbly people in a desert wilderness. And so where do you go to learn how to do that? You go to the desert wilderness. And so God takes him to Midian and begins teaching him leadership lessons that he will need. You see, Moses' calling wasn't going to involve uh, gold and silver and silk and uh, amazing food and servants that, that do things at his command. No, no, no. His calling involved burning bushes, burning tablets, uh, snakes, plagues, and grumbling people. That's what God was preparing Moses to do. And he had to do that in the wilderness. But even there, God cared for Moses. We see God's sovereign hand of direction and preparation in the life of Moses. All throughout chapter 1, God cares for the multitude of Israel. All throughout chapter 2, God cares for Moses, his servant. And I think from this passage of Scripture and many others, we can conclude that not only did God care for the multitude of Israel, not only did God care for Moses, but God cares for me. And God cares for you. That's number three. God cares for me. 
this same sovereign God who cared for Israel in these difficult circumstances, the same sovereign God that that saw that Moses was drawn out of the water and raised in a palace and protected as he fled and trained up in the wilderness, the same sovereign God who orchestrated all of that orchestrates your life and mine. He cares for us. He demonstrates it in so many ways. A couple years ago, I I came across an incredible song by Reggie Stone and Jeff Ferguson. It's called, My Great God Cares for Me. And I wanted to read the lyrics to you. It says, Autumn breeze stars, starts the dance. Forest trees clap their hands. Eagles cry, oceans war, roar, worshiping the Lord. Nations rise, kingdoms fall. God reigns high above them all. Knees will bow, tongues confess to his holiness. I join the praise, yet stand amazed that God, who's so great, would know what I need. He's always there. He hears my prayer. My great God cares for me. This great God of of creation, this great God of redemption who made a way out of slavery for Israel, who made a a way into leadership for Moses, he, he cares for me. God is so great. I am so small. Yet he cares for it all. In Psalm 8, David is overwhelmed with this thought as well. He says, Oh God, when I consider the heavens and the works of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? God, when I consider the moon and the stars and the plans you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? God cares for me. Do you understand that this morning? God cares for you. He cares for me. And he's demonstrated it. You see, the ultimate deliverance of the Israelites from literal slavery in Egypt mirrors the spiritual deliverance each each of us needs from our slavery to sin. Egypt represents the world. Pharaoh represents Satan. Slavery represents sin. Moses is a type of Christ who is raised up to deliver us, to make a way for us, and to free us from the world, to free us from Satan who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, to free us from our slavery to sin. This is a picture of how God cares for us. It's a picture of what God would do ultimately to save and redeem the world. You see, Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned, all of us. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin, the payment for our sin, is death and separation. Your people maybe say, I don't deserve this. Think again. What do we really deserve? Our maker said because of our sin, we deserve death. But he offers so much more. Romans 7.14 says that we are sold under sin just like slaves. We're sold under sin. We're bound by it. John 8.34 says that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We are enslaved by our own sin and self-effort. But God makes a way. Why? Because he cares for us. Just like Pharaoh, Satan puts on us impossible burdens to bear, telling us to make make bricks without straw. Your, Your good works will save you. It's a lie. Just work harder. Just do more. Just be more. That's an impossible burden to bear. How much do we do? What do we have to accomplish? How much do we have to achieve before God will say that's enough? The answer is there's, there's never enough. 
we all will fall short, even with our best efforts. And so Satan keeps us in bondage with his lies, but Jesus sends a deliverer. He makes a way out for us. I wanted to share a a story with you in closing. I was blessed to grow up in the beautiful state of Montana, and uh, there's hunting and fishing and and just beautiful scenery all around from the time I was two years old till I was 17. And my dad would take me hunting every year. Sometimes we would hunt on public land where there's other hunters, you know, that you're kind of competing with. But we were blessed to have a guy in our church, my dad's church, who was a rancher, and he owned thousands of acres of mountains and valleys and creeks and trees and mule deer. Thousands of acres. In fact, his ranch... Uh, was the neighboring ranch to Ted Turner's ranch. And Ted Turner's ranch, you had to have special permission to hunt on his property, but the only thing that separated his ranch from the ranch that our friend owned was just a barbed wire fence. So we had trophy mule deer jumping the fence all the time. It was an unprecedented opportunity. I didn't appreciate it then, but man, looking back, I sure do appreciate it now. So when I was old enough, my dad would take me every year, and we'd go out to this ranch. And uh, and over the years, as I was successful in my hunts, I started to think, you know, as a, as a young teenage boy, I'm pretty good at this. In fact, I'm, I might be the great white hunter. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it might be me. I think I have some uh, Indian blood somewhere way back. That's why I can't grow facial hair very well. And uh, I might be the great white hunter and uh, Mr. Mountain Man himself. And so I got kind of uh, cocky, a little arrogant. And my dad perceived this in my life uh, because he knew me well. And so I'll never forget, I was probably 15 or 16, and we went out there to hunt, and we'd park at this old uh, dilapidated schoolhouse. It was built in the 1800s. It was where the owner of the ranch's uh, parents went to school. And we would park, and we would uh, walk, you know, miles, never see another hunter. The rancher would tell us what side of the ranch uh, he was feeding his cattle on so we, we wouldn't endanger them. And then it was just my dad and me, thousands of acres of woods, just us and the mule deer. And so my dad saw this cockiness in me, and uh, looking back, I can see the wisdom in what he did. He said, hey, Dave, he said, it's kind of warm today. He said, why don't you go up this, uh, we called it a, a coulee. It was where the, it was where the mountains kind of uh, came together. It was like a, a giant ditch, if you will, between the two ridges. He said, why don't you go up through here? He said, it's, it's warm today. They'll probably be bedded down in there in the shade. And then I'll go up on the ridge, and we'll kind of do a sweep. And as you go through here and make a bunch of noise, you'll kick them up to me. And uh, I'll be able to to get a deer today. So basically, he was using me as his brush dog. (laughs) Well, I was like, okay, all right. But in my mind, I was thinking, I will be like like a mountain lion and not make any noise. And I will kill the deer in this ditch while you're up there walking on the mountaintop. I'll show you. So I started through this ditch, and... uh, as I, as I began, it was pretty easy. There was a game trail up there through the brush, and I was just kind of making good time and walking like a cat. You know, I was real stealthy. And I looked up, and my dad was on the ridge above me. He said, listen, if we get separated and you can't see me, he said, just whistle for me. And so we would carry around like a spent uh, rifle cartridge uh, because these carry, these carry a long ways if you just kind of blow into it like. <laughs> so you'd hear that through the woods. And I'd whistle for him, and then he'd whistle back, and we'd kind of triangulate the position. And so I had one of these, but I was not going to need this. I was the great white hunter. And so I was making great time, and I was envisioning, you know, the, the massive mule deer that I would encounter. Uh, but as I kept going, 
Uh, I saw my dad less and less because the tree, uh, the trees got a little bit thicker and the brush got a little bit thicker and I started to get kind of hot. So I took my jacket off and I was being real careful that I wouldn't hit my rifle on anything and I started to sweat and get a little frustrated climbing over down trees and going under some stuff and I scratched my arms and I started to get a little frustrated and I lost sight of that trophy mule deer that I was after and then I was just trying to survive. And I was making a lot of noise, and I couldn't see my dad anymore. And I'll be honest with you, I'll admit to you now, I was, I was afraid. I was scared. I was carving it out for myself. I lost sight of my dad. Um, and I even lost my purpose for being in there, and I just wanted to survive. Well, finally it got so bad that I wanted to get in touch with my dad. So I pulled out my little uh, cartridge, and I started whistling on it. And I was like, and it just wouldn't work. I was just, I was so, I was so upset, and I was shaking a little bit, and I couldn't get a whistle out, and call him on the on the cartridge here. So I was like, Dad, Dad, nothing. I couldn't hear him. Just silence. Well, it started to scare me. So I tried to, Dad, and I'll never forget. I looked up to my right, and in this clearing, way up near the top of the ridge, stood my dad, right out in the open. He must have been there for five minutes, and I never saw him, and he was looking at me with this big smile on his face. He was laughing at me. (laughs) He was watching me panic, and he was laughing, and he shook his head like this. And when he saw that I saw him, he went like this, come up here. And so he relieved me from my job. We walked up to the ridge above the tree lines. Nice walking. And we walked on. And he, we went in and saw this incredible herd of mule deer anyway. It was, a, it was a successful hunt. Why do I share that story with you? Some of you are in the coulee of life trying to carve it out on your own. You're afraid. You started out strong. Man, I'm going to go get it. I'm going to take life by the tail. I'm going to pull myself on my own bootstraps. And you started out with the with a vision, but now all you can think about is your circumstances, and you're beat up, and you're scratched, and you're torn, and you're helpless, and you're hopeless, and you don't think anybody's around to help. I'm here to tell you this morning, God cares. He sees you. He hears you. And all you have to do is call out to him. Just cry out to him. That's it. And you know what he'll do when you cry out to him? He'll say, come on. I'm here. I've got you. I'll help you. Come up to where I am. I'll walk with you. I'll empower you. I'll show you the way. And let's find that purpose together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as the band comes. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18 says this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears. He delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He saves such as have a contrite spirit. Do you need to cry out to God today? Are you like the children of Israel who are bound by sin? You are enslaved by sin and self-effort. You cannot see a way out. God has made a way. He's made a way out. He's made an exodus for you. All you have to do is cry out. Call upon the name of the Lord, and the Bible says you will be saved. In just a few moments, we're going to have an invitation time. 
And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you feel lost and alone in the darkness, carving it out by yourself, there's not a reason that you need to endure that one more day. You can be free from that. God's made a way out. All you have to do is cry out to Him. And as the band plays in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come down and trust in Jesus as your Savior. There's going to be people across the front with a Bible in hand that will love to show you the way out. The way out is Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've kind of fallen back into this self-assertive, prideful kind of a existence where, God, thank you for saving me, but I'm going to figure this out on my own. And you're living life on the horizontal. You're no longer dependent upon your Father. You need to cry out to him too. Like Peter who got out of the boat, got a little confident, walking on the water, but then he took his eyes off Jesus and he started to sink. You know what saved him? He cried out. He said, Lord, save me. Maybe you're like Peter and you need to cry out to God because you're off track. Don't pass up an opportunity to find the way out. Father, we thank you for this overarching truth that we see in Exodus 1 and 2 that you care the way you cared for the multitude in the worst of circumstances the way you cared for Moses and protected him from certain death you care for us and you're here this morning and you're waiting to save those who cry out who call out to you Lord if there's some here that need to be saved I pray that they would not waste another moment but that they would come and cry out to you I pray as David prayed in Psalm 10, 17, Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and will comfort them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you need to pray, if you need to come, I invite you to do so as we worship together.